This is the Chicago Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. This is Nick Sarantos, host, editor-in-chief, Grand Poobah, Chicago Podcast Network. I love calling myself that. Joined over the interwebs and Skype by my good buddy, AJ Signari. AJ, say hello to the wonderful people. Uh, so today, AJ, we're going to get into the topic with the Chicago Podcast Network, which last time I checked, Chicago is in Illinois. Chicago in Illinois? Uh, sure, to some people. To some people. Well, Cook County should basically almost be its own state, which would be great, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I want to I want to talk about the budget crisis. I want to talk about some of the far-reaching implications of it. And, and, and I just want to talk to you, AJ, about your feelings on this stuff, and, and I want to get into uh, how this is happening nationwide, and, I, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, about how this is not isolated just to the state of Illinois, but Illinois has one of the more uh, severe budget crunches due to the pension program. I want to start with this. If, if anybody didn't see it, uh, who was listening to this podcast, or you weren't following the story, I want to say it was Monday was it Monday was the State of the State speech by Rauner? Was that Monday? Wednesday. It was Wednesday. Okay, and that tells you how my week's been going. Uh, Wednesday, Bruce Rauner gave his State of the State speech, which, first of all, they need to change the name of that because that just sounds really lame. The When he was getting ready to give that speech, there were something in the neighborhood of 500 to 1,000 protesters in the state capitol uh, protesting the idea of the speech without a state budget having been approved. Rauner... Uh, as I understand it from stories that I've heard from some of the people that were there, while these organizations are standing out there protesting the lack of a budget that is severely crippling social services in the state of Illinois, one a lot of these people fight to help people get on food stamps, to help people get on the right amount of welfare, anything that they need. Router had a giant lunch delivered to his office in front of all of these people. And to me... And to a lot of people who I've talked to, there's not a better representation, man, of just how far detached the politicians are from what is actually happening. And I, I want to get into that with you a little bit. I, I want to talk, AJ, first and foremost about can someone whose family has been rich for three generations truly understand what it's like? If you don't come from wealth, do you think that they can even approximate understanding what that's like? Well, then, then there's the reverse question. Can someone who has never had wealth really understand how a family or a person um, has attained the wealth and everything? Um, and I say that not because it's more defending rounder or wealthy people, um, because this is something I've always contended myself over the years. Um, my, my response to the question is no, because they have been in that reality for, for some time. You know, the generation before them has told them, you know, you have money. Here's what the money does. This is how we got our money. And then they use their own money for particular purposes and everything. Um, but having said that, you know, I know wealthy people and I know how how they got that wealth and that legacy of that money has helped them in the community and everything and what have you. And they've used their money for 
good versus when you see someone like Rauner or Pritzker or Ken Griffin or anyone else in Illinois that has made money for the sake of making money um, doesn't truly understand what it means to live in Illinois because they have a certain world that they lived in, that be it Cook County. I, I the, the issue that I've had with the recent budget crisis is, first and foremost, the the demonization of the public unions. And if you look at it on paper and somebody makes the argument to you that the pension program costs too much money in the state of Illinois, they're not wrong. The, the pension program in Illinois is, is, is gigantic. And there's lots of reasons for that to have happened. They're unfunded due to massive amounts of lobbying done by people who wanted to maintain the status quo and not have the pension funding go up so they could divert the money to other services or to give tax cuts to people. But the disconnect, the not understanding some of this stuff and, and not understand. And, and I feel we're talking about this because again, I, I grew up in a really nice neighborhood. It, it, it's different, but again, my parents work very hard and they're not rich. They're, you know, good. They're financially secure for the most part, but it could all disappear in a second. That can't happen to some people at a certain level of income. Right. And some of the people I grew up with's families have that amount of money in, in their, within their world. And I, I look at a situation like what happened on Wednesday where you had Glenn heading politicians, because let's face it, as much vitriol is being spilled publicly, you know, the behind closed doors, the Democrats and Republicans don't hate each other to the amount that they make it seem like they do in the media because they have to work together, you know? Right. And I mentioned to you before we did the show that part of my brain now, because of the X-Files have come back, is looking at this from the conspiracy angle. And the truth is, I think you and I have talked about this before on other shows that we've done, that the conspiracy angle, the conspiracy theory stuff is is ridiculous because conspiracy theory implies that it's hidden. This stuff isn't hidden anymore. It's out there on Front Street, as the kids like to say. And I, I just wanted to use like the kids like to say. <laughs> like the kids like to say. Well, you know, I am 33 years old, so I'm not no kid. But I don't feel like an adult either, so I got that going for me, which is bad. The... But here's here's what I want to get into, AJ. You and I, since I, I I first became politically aware, which I guess is this way is this is a way to say it. When I was in high school, uh, it got me early. We've talked about the West Wing before, and that's when I started paying attention to politics. But it wasn't until after I got out of school uh, in two thousand and four when I started doing radio full time and I started working for a couple political stations that I started looking at just the ridiculousness of all of it. And be it a left-leaning radio station that I worked at where they had on people who just accused Republicans of all being racist all the time, or when I worked at the conservative station and had to listen to Rush Limbaugh every day and wanted to kill myself because of the ignorant crap that he was spewing. But even at that point, this is 05, 06, 07, uh, pre-Barack Obama running, the 
money that was get, starting to get into politics as a result of the Citizens United decision has started to taint the system. You started getting the idea of the billion-dollar presidential elections. It's a billion dollars. Illinois, last year, in 2015, ran at a $6 billion deficit in its budget. For those of you who don't know what that means, it basically says that of the of the budget, they were going to lose $6 billion no matter what. There was no way to, to recop those losses. It was going to end up going to either creditors, debtors, and, and something along those lines. Illinois has a cash reserve that they're not spending, that debtors are going after, but Illinois is refusing to pay out of. My issue, AJ, is this. There seems to be in many states around the country, this conservative governorship that's been taking place, the best example is Wisconsin, but there are other examples as well, that Republican governors are getting into office on the backs of the wealthiest citizens of their states and by, backed by people out of state to basically loosen and weaken union regulations, union negotiating power, and just the continued tax cuts for the wealthy and have driven these states into ba- into basically bankruptcy. And here's the thing. Those services that get cut don't affect any of those people. The fact that the state doesn't have any money to pay any credit isn't going to have any effect on their business. And most importantly, the lack of consideration, the lack of being compassionate to your fellow man at that level has grown in a way that just kind of disgusts me. I don't know what other phrase to use. The state of Illinois is in a financial crisis. That is true. We are very fortunate that we are not living in the state of Michigan right now. I mean, the, the Flint water crisis to me is one of the best examples of this, for lack of better term, Republican conspiracy that basically allows them to treat poor people horribly. Would you? Do you understand what I'm saying with that? I do, and, you know, I could do a two-hour show alone on why having a Republican governor or General Assembly, an all-Republican General Assembly, would be the worst idea for any state, not even just Pennsylvania, Michigan, Illinois. I mean, I even Arizona, New Mexico, and Hawaii, for for example. Um you want to talk about people who don't get it. Conservatives don't get it at all. There's a certain philosophy that they believe in, which is the total opposite of what a progressive society looks like. And it's even beyond um, pro-choice um, pulling yourself by the bootstraps. It, it's beyond that. It's a certain mentality that they feel conservatism is a virtue. And if you don't believe in that virtue, then why even have a society to begin with? Because you need a virtuous society in order to live a certain code and conduct than to have a real progressive society, which is is to help people, which is to help um, a certain segment of society to offer and provide certain things that is a real human right. 
Um, that's what the problem is, is you have the Rick Snyders, those Scott Walkers, the Bruce Rauners, the Mike Pences, who's the governor of Indiana. The Rick Scotts. The Rick Scotts of the world believe in this shit. And not just them. I mean, I can point to even Democratic governors who believe a certain neoliberal philosophy as well. But that's we'll put that off to the side for a second. When you have in the Midwest a mostly conservative area, it's really bothersome that in the last decade that the Midwest has really deteriorated because of certain conservative as well as neoliberal policies that has really deteriorated our environment, our local economy, um, education, our health care. Um, the homeless, the working class, everyone across the board, and no one has gained anything except for the private sector, um, pharmaceutical companies, and all that. Um, like I said, I can go on a diatribe on all this, but the, the main point is we are in dire straits, and those who are elected, specifically in Illinois, um, do not understand are really out of touch of what their constituents are really saying to them. Well, I, I want to talk to you for a minute about, and, and I'm not sure how much you, you know about the, the, the current tax system in the state of Illinois, but there, there are examples of, of stuff being enacted that don't make any sense, except that the politicians who enact these are working in the interests of big business and not in the interest of the people that they were sent there to serve. No, to me, the number one thing that a corporation needs the same protections as people is ridiculous to me. It's a corporation. It, it, it should be fought. The free market conservatives also want to protect big business by giving them massive tax incentives. In 2008, the year of the financial crisis, two out of three corporations in the, in, in the state of Illinois, two out of three, Corporations, not as corporations, not limited partnerships, but actual corporations had no income tax uh, obligations in the year of 2008. That's a trend that's continued. Uh, the number's gone down a little bit, but for the most part, that trend has continued. The first three months in office, Bruce Rauner opened up a $100 million tax incentive to businesses that uh, Pat Quinn had frozen during his terms as governor. During his term as governor, he gave a hundred million dollars in tax incentives that had been frozen and only, and then cut $26 million in social services. So they lost the revenue and then cut only 26 million of the 100 million that they lost in revenue. And that's just on social services. That doesn't include education cuts. That doesn't include, uh, you know, CTA and, and rail cuts that have happened where people are being laid off. To me, the public transportation issue, believe it or not, is the best example of the disconnect, man, because most of these people don't take public transportation. So if you tell them, well, we're down to one, you know, one less train a day, they don't understand that one less train a day it can be the difference between someone getting fired or not because a train runs late because the service itself, for whatever reason, doesn't run late. You never know what can happen as a result of that. This is the stuff that needs to run on time, and they don't care. They don't care. I think that's my biggest issue with this budget crisis. I feel like as much as Madigan is not a good person in a lot of ways, 
at least he's representing the side that wants to to keep these things running. Whereas on the conservative side, I, I you know what? Here, I, I want to take this another way. I, I have a joke when I watch wrestling with my roommates. And I, I want you to stick with me for this for a second. There's this thing that happens when Vince McMahon comes down, right? And he basically tells everybody that that's not the, that the the hero doesn't get to fight for the championship, even though for business it would be the best decision. But personally, he wants whoever to be champ. Doesn't matter. The point is, in that universe that they've created, you basically can take the implication that the upper management never wants anybody to fight. Because that's the implication of how they act. If you take that kind of idea and apply it to the politics that happen, based on how the state is currently being run, I don't think Bruce Rauner wants there to be a CTA. I think don't think he wants there to be public transportation. I think everything that, that they want everything to be privatized so that everyone can profit off of it. The idea that they're going to allow services for the mentally uh for for people with mental health issues services for the homeless medical care for the poorest people and they're going to shut those services down so that they can continue to give tax breaks to large corporations who maybe not even who are not even necessarily based in Illinois but they allow them to take these massive tax cuts that if they eliminated those loopholes would allow for the state to be able to pay a lot of this debt that they have and be able to reenact, to enact all these services. But instead, you're looking at a state where the poorest 20% is paying 10.9% of their income. The middle 20% is paying 9.4% of their income. The top 1% in the state of Illinois are paying 5.4%, 50% less than the poorest people uh, based on their income, man. That's where it starts to just, your, your, my brain starts to boil. Because clearly that's not right, but nobody seems to care, and they keep cutting taxes for the wealthy like they need it. Whereas if you just got rid of those loopholes, you would have at least 50% of this deficit would be taken care of by those taxes. And so, go ahead. So, so in one part of Browner's presentation, and, what's this, and we should have done this earlier in the show. If you listen to Rauner's speech, address, whatever you want to call it, on Wednesday, that was not a coach rallying up the team. It wasn't a cheerleader, you know, trying to, you know, cheer up people of Illinois, the General Assembly and all that. This was a, a CEO of a company telling his employees what's going on. And that was the tone he set right off the bat in that, in that speech he gave. And in one part of his speech, he talks about, you know, how Rockford, East Moline, Peoria, Blue Island, all these cities are competing with states like Indiana, Wisconsin, Iowa, Texas, and more, and how we're losing 300,000 plus manufacturing jobs to those states, which articulates to a smaller tax base to into education infrastructure and the quality of life in Illinois, as he outlines. So I don't know why you're comparing a city to a state other than 
You look at Peoria, where Caterpillar has, over time, said, if you don't give us tax breaks, we're leaving. Or Arthur Daniel Mitchell, which is headquarters in Decatur, has always said, if you don't give us tax breaks, we're leaving to Texas or elsewhere. Which goes back to the point of, you know, Rauner and the Republicans talk about a spending problem. Which is right, because if we remember back in 2011, where under Quinn and Madigan and the Democrats also, that every year we're paying $330 million to Sears, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and the Chicago Board of Options Exchange. Every year, $330 million for a tax break because they still want to transaction money out of Illinois into New York, London, China, Japan, and other places and everything. What is my point? My point is this. You look at cities like Rockford, and because Rockford is the perfect city, in my view, of what's everything's wrong in Illinois. Rockford used to be the manufacturing hub in the state of Illinois, the first largest outside of Chicago when it comes to downstate Illinois. Um, the third, the second largest at one time, if you include Chicago, now it's the fourth, if not fifth largest in Illinois, because over time, under various Republican and Democratic mayors and governors and government, state government, Rockford has lost population. It has lost manufacturing jobs. You had a business like Amrock who used to be the manufacturing cabinets, closed its doors before the 21st century came into being. <clears throat> you had a company like Sunstrand, who got bought out by Hamilton, which is now Hamilton Sunstrand, which makes aeronautical parts and everything. And it may look like in the next five years, they're going to leave Rockford also. Because they're competing with foreign companies through globalization, through policies like NAFTA and CAFTA, and because of these tax breaks, because the 1% says, you know, if you don't give us what you want, we're going to leave. And I think that's kind of bullshit. Well, there's a there's an argument to be made that if you're going to hold a, a gun to the state's head and say, we're going to leave when if you don't give us the tax breaks, at some point you need to start holding these companies accountable. And it, I don't know if legally you can – just start telling companies, fine, that, that's all well and good. But if you do that, we're not going to allow the state to import your products. And I know that that's like a, a, a weird idea, but it's just when you start allowing these companies to dictate everything that you do and they don't do anything to further the, just the betterment of the people, it, it, it bugs the crap out of me. The, the, the thing that pisses me off more than anything else is that this is also the party of the Christian conservative. And I was raised Irish Catholic. I went to church every Sunday when I was a kid. And all the lessons I ever learned from Jesus Christ were treat the poor as, you know, help the poor as much as you can. And the Christian conservative right has decided that the way to do that is to keep screwing them over until they just learn the lesson to not be poor anymore. Like that, that's what it feels like to me. And, and you're talking to me and you have great points about the globalization and people threatening to leave. But at some point, they still need hubs. They still need places to do their business. And I don't know about you, but all those tax incentives hasn't seemed to really slow people leaving the United States 
to go to other countries to keep making money. The, the rate of people, of companies leaving is still happening. That doesn't even include the, the tax loophole stuff that we talked about on our show early on in our little endeavor here of people shipping their headquarters offshore to be able to avoid paying income taxes here in the United States that we allow them to do based on our tax law because everyone's so afraid of people leaving the United States doing business. Well, if by doing business you're doing more harm than good, then who the hell cares if you leave? Well, yeah, and but here's the other problem. So let's take Arthur and Daniel Mitchell ADM indicator. Okay, they run that town, and by run that town, some of their administrators are also on the city council, who are also part of the chamber of commerce. So they run that town. They hold the people of Decatur. With a gun to their head saying, well, you know what? <clears throat> We're going to leave. And they can go right back to the city council and say, how about you do something for us so we can stay in Decatur? That, you know what? That's a great point. You want to talk about conspiracy theories, right? You want to talk about that. So you're telling me that the company that is the biggest job provider in the city has people on the city board and has people in the chamber of commerce that work for their company who are also on those boards so that when the company needs something, they can present something to the boards and they just approve of it. Oh, yeah. This is the same ridiculousness that allows people who work for the industry or people who've worked in the finance industry to now be on the boards that control it. It's the same thing that happens when people leave something like a Goldman Sachs and go work for the SEC or even better, work for the SEC and then go work at Goldman Sachs to help them get around the laws and the rules that they employed when they worked for the SEC. And and you look at that and go, that's just not right. Nothing about that seems Correct, but nobody is doing anything to stop it, and the information that is out there is so sporadic. That's the other thing, man. You go and you try to find information that just backs up a simple theory that the richest 1% are paying for the, the political offices to line their own pockets. And the information is available there, but it's not being put together in a cohesive narrative because the media companies that would cover this are owned by the people who are doing this. Right, and, you know, when you... For years, and when I say years, I mean years, living before I moved to Chicago and all that, the first time around, I was a huge advocate of having a train from Chicago to Rockford for the only basis of people can commute from Chicago to Rockford for work or for travel, leisure or whatever. Um, it would bring more commerce in jobs, into rock and everything. And for years, it's like, well, well, we'll do studies. We'll do studies. And they do studies, and they say, well, it's not feasible. And yet, they didn't do anything with it. And you look at no train going to Rockford, and it has dwindled over time. And Rockford to Chicago, by taking 90 in, is a 90-minute drive, you know? And now people are willing to drive into Rockford, and hell... I mean, Rockford's now facing 25% unemployment rate. Crime is going up and everything. Housing is going, is on the decline as well. And the things I just mentioned earlier about how over time since the 80s and 90s that Rockford has been losing manufacturing jobs and other businesses, that it's leaving skeletal remains of businesses along major roads, Alpine Road, State Street, Levin Street, Main Street, Perryville, Spring 
Grove, all these streets have nothing but empty businesses that no one's using. And if you took the economic theory of if you look at a swimming pool with those lanes, if you put an anchor in the middle of that and it drags it down, that same economic theory applies. If you have one property that's weighing down property value, then everything around that one thing weighing down is also losing its property value which means no one's going to live in Rockford. Because of that, you have a high employment rate. You have no one going to schools, and they want to go to schools into the suburbs or into Wisconsin or going to Cal. And that's why you have Rockford the way it is right now. When you think of the city of Rockford, then, as just a great example, and you're making some great points, do you know if the social services in that city where they've been cut and where the ineffectiveness has come in. Like, with the massive amount of population leaving the, the, the area, have services as well just been shutting down? Like, does public transportation disappear as much as it would seem like it had to? I mean, the public transportation in Rockford has been maintaining itself and everything. So, I mean, they, they have a bus system um, in the city of Rockford, but because of the budget impasse, um, it has really affected social services in Rockford. There's a major organization called Rosecrans. They work with those with addiction and mental health. Um, they used to be open 24 hours, and because of the budget impasse, they only have to be open from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. Okay. And there's, an, and there's another organization called ARC, this A-R-C, that works with uh, those on recovery for addiction um, and mental health. Um, their budget also just got slashed because of the budget impasse. And that was like a month ago, well, two months ago now, between Rosecrans and ARC and everything. Um, housing, they're, they're always you know, on the line for their budget to be cut or cutting certain programs because there's not enough funding um, for that as well. And because of that, you know, you have housing issues in the city of Rockford and there's been many people who are trying to figure out how to convert businesses, old businesses and housing into creative things. And that hasn't gone anywhere. Cause if you go to West of Rockford and by West of Rockford, anything past Alpine road and West, um, you will see like this deterioration, and start seeing this is where Amrock used to be. This is where Whitney Young used to be. And those are just skeletal remains. And then if you go east, you start seeing this slow dying process that Rockford's going through and everything. And this is the town that Cheap Trick comes out of. <laughs> nice. It's just got into the Rockford Hall of Fame now. This is the city that the Rockford Peaches came out of. You know, when, when, I mean, no, no, this that, is the city where the Blackhawks farm team plays out of. And it might as well just be Gary, Indiana now. Exactly. That's what Rockford is in Illinois. It is Gary, Indiana. It really is. You know, it's funny. We, jo I always, we always make jokes here in Chicago about Gary, Indiana. But the truth is, they were the canary in the coal mine. If you think about it, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when Gary started to really, you know, fall apart, 
they were one of the first cities to experience what has been a, a you know, you think of like a snowball running down a hill. Like Gary was the first snowball, but then slowly what happened to them is started to happen to small towns and municipalities across the country. And in the last 10 years, it started hitting major cities and major state institutions. And they're all a result of deregulation of corporate tax breaks and by allowing the wealthiest to have so much political influence that it's impossible. You, you, there, I read a stat today, getting ready for the show, that says um, there was a, a poll that was done by Northwestern University, a very interesting poll talking about it was an anonymous uh, inquiry with the top 1% of uh, the wealthiest people in the state of Illinois. And when asked questions about you know, what their leanings are politically, whatever, you know, most of them obviously say that they lean like the wealthy, like millionaires, you know, low level millionaires, as weird as that sound is, tend to lean liberal. But the, you know, people who are in the hundreds of millions to the billions of dollars want a right wing agenda pushed through because it helps them maintain their influence. And the more you look at a situation like a Gary, Indiana, like the now state of Illinois, you, you start to realize that it's all to protect their own little pile and, and to constantly just take from everybody else and give nothing. And, and, and well, they give to charity. Okay. But they don't, that doesn't help anybody get services to the people that desperately need it. And when I say desperately, there are people who are going to, who, there are people who are dying as a result of this budget crisis in Illinois. Don't think that there isn't. Don't think that because, like, and this is anybody who's listening, don't think that just because you're seeing this on the news and it's being covered that people aren't legitimately 100% for real dying from starvation and a lack of health care because the state can't fund anything. And here we are looking at a governor who is going to, as far as we can tell, make it illegal for unions to contribute to politicians while the wealthiest are allowed to give unlimited sons. Think about that for a minute. That is a law that he wants passed. I know. I mean, that that's the one that, more than anything else, the, who ran and opposed to Rauner? Pat Quinn. Where did most of his funding come from? From the labor unions. Rauner gets elected. What does he want? To make sure that labor unions can no longer contribute to the political process. That's, you know. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So, so if we look at Quinn and Rauner's campaigns, Rauner contributed his own campaign to the tune of $6.6 million. Right. Okay. He self-funded his campaign because he can do that. Ken Griffin, hedge fund guy in Chicago, CEO of Citadel, $3.6 million. Richard, I always I always mispronounce his last name. It's Richard um, Hulin of the CEO of Euling Corporation, who contributed um, $605,000 to his campaign. Glenn Tolman of the chairman of Seven Wires Ventures, which they provide um, entrepreneurs and they invest in the healthcare, education, and energies, um, which is a small thing of $255,000 and everything. Okay, so let's talk about CEOs, hedge fund people. Oh, and not to mention the Republican Governor Association gave Rauner $1.5 million, mind you. 
which possibly may be the most evil organization on the planet. It I'm is. just going to throw that out there. You look at Ron, you look at Pat Quinn. Did you look at that? Did you look at that webpage? By the way, the Republican Governors Association. Oh, I always look. I always look at their webpage every now and then just to make me laugh. It's such a so, so many white faces. It is. Um, not that much color on there, mind you. <laughs> um, SEIU, Services Employees International Union, gave Quinn $1.8 million. The Democratic Governor Association gave Quinn $1.1 million. Um, the United Education and Political Education Committee gave Quinn $575,000. Um, IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, gave Quinn $244,000. Dollars. Um, the Teamsters Union gave Quinn one hundred seventy-five thousand, something one hundred and seventy-nine thousand. Excuse me, dollars to Quinn's campaign. So these have been mostly unions. These and, I'm, and there's been more, but I mean these are the top donors to each respective candidate. Um, so on Quinn's side, it was unions who gave Quinn money, um, and Rauner was mostly the private sector. That gave him money. Yeah. Um, so that's the battle. Private sector versus the public sector. And it's always been like that in, in Illinois, if you if you follow Illinois history. Anytime a governor or a mayor in the state of Illinois, it's always private sector, public sector. You look at the Haymarket riot, the Pullman strike, um, anything that's happened in labor history, it's private sector Versus the public sector, it's always been like that. Well, you you also bring up a good point when you start mentioning those those battles, those early battles of for union rights, and and this is the thing that really gets me more than anything else. When when I hear somebody, family members of mine included, by the way, and friends of mine talk about, you know, the power of unions and the, and the, and they enforce all these stuff, and I got into a really big argument with a family member of mine because he started saying to me, you know, he goes, well, what if you're a union worker? He goes, and there are people who sit there and go, well, if they have to work a minute after their time is over, that they call their union rep, and you know that makes it so they don't put any extra effort in. And I want to look at them and go, yes, extra effort, it's extra. You know, like it's one of those things where you go, they're not required to do it. And if you're not required to do something, why would you do it unless you're going to be compensated for it? Do you think that an actor shows up on scene and if they go, well, we need to do another three months of reshoot because the director didn't do everything he needed? Okay, well, you're going to pay me for that, right? No. Okay, well, I'm not coming to do your damn reshoots unless it's in the contract, in which case the person goes. If I have a thing that happens with people where they they, they say stuff about, Employees and they and they're constantly throwing people under the bus because people don't work hard enough. And my response to them is, no, they work as hard as they want to, as they feel they need to. If you have a problem with it, then you in their union, then you can take it up with their union. But that's what they negotiated for. People worked very hard. People again, saying this again, people freaking died for those protections because without those protections, people were worked to death. Right, and and that's and that's very true. I mean, you look at other things that have happened in Illinois, Land, Illinois, <clears throat> very very small town, coal mining town. Um, back in the early nineteen hundreds, nineteen oh nine. Well, not just Land, Cherry, Illinois, which is right next door. Very another small town, coal coal town, um, Cherry, Illinois. Nineteen oh nine had the uh, coal mine disaster. Four hundred plus people died. 
you know, um, 10 of them kids under 12, you know, we had no labor law practices. We had no policies, all that. And because of that, um, OSHA, what's what we now know as OSHA, um, that protects workers and everything, um, started to have that conversation and everything um, under the AFL as well as the CIO um, and everything. There's other things that happened that has led to having better working conditions and fighting for better wages and everything. But I, I do have to contend, contest rather, um, with unions because, you know, workers or union workers are different than union administrators. And this is where I'm coming, going with this. I have actually seen unions tell their workers not to work or tell them this is a seven-day job, we're actually going to make this a 12-day job. I've actually seen unions not give their workers any work at all. Or, And I've also seen union people say, hey, hey, come to this rally, go to this, and we're going to pay you and everything. You know, as a, you know, you have to do this. You know, we have to do this and everything. I really feel there's a division in unions when it comes to the union administrators and in union workers because it's really the union administrators that are also causing problems in the state of Illinois and not just the workers and everything. No, I agree with you on that. And, and, and to act like the system is perfect is, is, is stupid. I mean, I'm not that per, I don't, I don't think that the union system is perfect as it currently exists. And for every, you know, 10 workers who just want to be able to work, there's one person who's, I don't even know if these numbers are accurate or I'm just saying this off the top of my head, but just as an example, there is, a, you know, on every given crew, let's say one guy who's there because he's union and he just wants to get paid for not doing anything. But that's the same at any job you have anywhere in in the world. You know, for every hardworking employee, there's another one who just wants to sit on ass. So you work with the system to get the bad people out. But if the union administrators aren't doing what they should, and I don't know what you're talking about with the whole, we're going to pay you for the days where the work come out and protest with us. That happens a lot, actually, and people would be shocked how often it does. The issue pay them a higher rate, mind you. I've actually seen one union pay a teenager, 21 an hour, just to sit in a lawn chair with a sign. Okay. But you know what I'm saying no, I, I, I'm not arguing with you. I'm not saying that 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 kind of stuff isn't going to happen. But I also feel that I would rather side with that group of people than the group of people who are trying to put money into one person's pocket. Because at least with a union, even as corrupt as it may be, the money does eventually get down to the people who who need the the money from jobs and need the money from work. Whereas if you get rid of unions, the, the best example of that is, believe it or not, to people who are listening, if you want to know about the powers of unions, look at baseball. Baseball is the best example of all of this. Before baseball unionized, the owners made 80% of the profits from baseball. After they got unionized, it got divided up 50, basically, uh, I think it's 60 40. Right. It's something along those lines under, um, Mark Millar, who was a, a union organizer who worked with, uh, Cesar Chavez in, 
California for the orange pickers and then took that and started applying it to other industries, most notably to baseball. And he had a player named Kurt Flood who took on what was called the reserve clause. And the reserve clause made it that if a team had you, you couldn't negotiate with any other teams. The other team had the first right of your home team had the first right of refusal. And as a result of that, players were basically, once you got drafted by a team, that was the team you played for unless they decided to get rid of you. And it didn't allow an employee, an employee to go play for whoever he wanted, which is wrong. And they fought against it and they got it changed. But really it's the, it's the money sharing that was important because I would, people would say, well, the owners own the team. Shouldn't they make most of the money? Sure. But an owner who owns a team can't feel the team without players. So the players need to be compensated because the game is what matters. Nobody goes to U.S. Cellular Field or Wrigley Field to pay homage to the owners. They go to watch the players play. Nobody cares that an owner owns a team. What they care about is the fact that the players play. That, to me, is 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 one example of a union doing what's right for the people who work for it. You want to get into the idea of a bad union employee? I, I have a member of my family who it's been described to me as he's that guy. He's the guy who shows up and goes, it's five minutes after my shift ended. I'm leaving. And people would say, well, shouldn't you stay until the job is finished? He says, no, my law, my union job says this. And I have no problem with somebody leaving when the job is done. When the day, when the, what they negotiated for happens, if you have a problem with it, force them to change the system. But by eliminating unions in general, and more importantly, by average people being okay with that, they don't understand what the long-term ramifications of that are going to be. That's my issue, AJ. Well, I mean, and, and, and all that, I agree with those things. Um, the only thing I do disagree with, and it's a very respect, respective disagreement, that um, I think that's also the problem I also see with certain labor unions who have that mentality of, of oh, five o'clock, contract says this, they're done. And I've seen shitty work on our roads. I've seen shitty work when it comes to electrical lines. I've seen shitty work when it comes to sanitation and everything that, you know, because what their union contract states and they're not doing the work that needs to be done, and then they crap on independent contractors because they're taking their jobs away because they actually do quality work. No, I agree with you on that, that if an independent contractor can, in fact, do a better job than a union outfit, then it's on the person doing the project to hire the people who aren't union. And I don't mind that. I really don't. That's that's just free market economy one on one. If you're doing, if you can provide a better service than the other group, that's fine. Then it's on the union to pr produce better employees and better union workers to make sure that the jobs are done correctly. However, yeah, but, but until you have like union, that would only happen unless unions start saying all workers, both union and the independents. Yeah, yeah for all workers. You know, yes, you're independent and, you know, we have a union contract and everything, but if unions would support the idea that every Illinois worker, regardless of their union or independent, needs to fight this fight, then I think we could have a better path to success when it comes to labor rights in Illinois and everything. Because speaking only from experience, when you have a father who's an independent contractor, to which the union has followed him from our house 
to work and to jobs and pick at him. Yeah. I have a problem with. No, absolutely. And, 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 and you should. And that's the. And telling me as an activist that, you know, we put $2 million aside to put your dad out of business. I bet that felt really good. You know, <laughs> I just, even though they look at me, it's like, Hey, you're the labor guy. You're, you're on our side and everything. I'm like, yeah, to a point. No, That's I, why I don't like IBEW. Well, that, well that, and then you start getting into the idea of, you know, the difference between, you know, philosophy and absolutes, because the, the truth is philosophy uh, and labor union philosophy, like generally speaking, just the progressive philosophy biggest weakness is that it, it tends to try to deal in absolutes, which don't exist in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, the reverse side of it, though, is that the conservative side also deals in absolutes, but their absolutes tend to deal with making sure that they continue to make money. And that's where I start to get really angry. And, and before we end this show, AJ, because we've got about 10 minutes left, I, I want to discuss the situation in Flint and kind of related a little bit to what's going on right here in Illinois. Because I, I don't know if in our lifetime, man, we've seen a crisis in a state or in a town caused by government worse than what's happening right now in Flint, Michigan. And it's under the watch of a Republican governor who was at much like Ronner, given a lot of money by the Republican, uh, was it the Republican governor's association mm -hmm. and got into office and started to enact the same policies that Walker's enacted, the same policies that Rauner's trying to get in and forced the city of Flint to, basically to save money, have to do what they did and start taking water out of the Flint River, which they knew was poisonous. And and to me, the most egregious moment of this entire thing is the rerouting of water from Lake Huron directly to the GE factory because the water was so bad, it was corroding GE's cars. And they still allowed it to have to be entered into the civil water supply. That's criminal. That goes beyond just morally wrong. That's criminal. You knew that this was happening, and you did nothing to stop it. You did nothing to curtail it. And I feel like that's where a lot of the Republican leadership is starting to go, where it's screw the working class poor, screw, honestly, the lower middle class, and just, listen, either you have money or you don't, and if you don't, then we don't care about you because you can't help us stay in power. And that's where I'm starting to get afraid because that's where I'm starting to see, AJ, the, the whole thing going. Do you think, am I being overly paranoid or is that the way that this stuff is starting to go? No, and um, Flint is horrible. It really is. And Flint, for decades, has always been the redhead stepchild in Michigan. Um, it really has been. Um, and... As bad as Flint is at right now, um, Flint is really the, how do I want to say this? Flint is really the symbol of what's wrong with other towns that are happening in the United States. We're, we're spotlighting Flint because this has been going on for at least two years. Right. That we know of in Flint, right? 
So, and it's and because of social media, because of various grassroots activists and faith-based organizations in Flint has really made us an issue. And thanks to, in some part, Michael Moore, because he's from there, um, spotlighted this issue. But there's been other cities um, that have been affected by this that are not like at Flint um, mainstream media standards. Um, or level rather. I mean, there's other towns like here in Illinois that are affected that no one's really addressing. I mean, the, the same water sanitation that's going through Flint is happening in Northwest Illinois and everything. Um, you look at what's, what New York had to go through over centuries. Um, they've had those issues and everything all because of elected officials either turned a blind eye or they were really naive of what's going on in their city. And Flint mayor, and I hope she gets reelected, these are the kind of issues that make or breaks, you know, a mayor and everything. And I think the mayor has done as much as she could as a city official by addressing the issue and trying to find solutions and everything because until Rick, uh, Rick Snyder, the governor of Michigan, and the General Assembly of Michigan releases the constraints from Flint is the only way Flint can progress as a city, not just the water, but its local economy, as well as other societal ills that are happening in that town. Well, and it- I do want to end the show a little bit on this. This is the United States of America. This isn't Michigan. This isn't a city that in Flint, Michigan, that at one point had one of the most booming economic powerhouses driven by manufacturing that the, the, the country had ever seen. And in 40 years has turned into this. And look, maybe it's a cultural bias. Maybe it's a form of racism that I have that I'm unaware of. But I naively, AJ, really thought that there are certain things in the United States you could keep, take for granted. One, that cops couldn't just kill you. That's been kind of disproven. And I know that people will say, well, no, that's happened throughout. I said, yeah, but there's usually been something that comes as a result of it. That doesn't happen anymore. I, I took it for granted that your civil liberties, in all manner of speaking, were sacrosanct. That there was nothing that could ever come into the United States that even, even after 9-11, I believe that, the, that we would protect people's civil liberties as much as we could because that's what makes us the United States of America. And number three, and which is really number one, because it's such a basic need of life. I thought we had clean drinking water. And, and I know that there are issues and that you had stuff going on, but realistically, it's water. It's the most, it's two thirds of the planet. We have it. You're telling me that you can't get clean water to a major American, I guess city, I guess Flint's a city. You can't get them clean water in the United States of America. The, as they like to say on the right, the greatest nation on the planet or the most powerful nation on earth with the greatest military and the greatest economy that the world has ever seen. And you have citizens 
who cannot drink water. They have to go to centers now and pick up cases of bottled water because they can't shower with the water. They can't cook with the water. They can't drink with the water that's coming out. And if you don't think that those people who live in Flint, Michigan would rather live anywhere else on the in the country, you're out of your damn mind. But it's not exactly like if you work a job that let's say that you live in Flint and you've got a minimum wage job and that's the only like what are you going to do save up money to move to to Illinois you you can't financially do it so the only options are either fix the freaking problem or turn an entire city of american citizens into refugees from a crisis that was caused by a governor oh yeah and you know just to couple what you're just saying and coming back to Cook County a little bit. Cook County has a Metro Water Reclamation District. So in other words, all the the waste that's produced in Cook County goes through a sanitation system and it's drinking water and all that great jazz. There's two major treatment plants, one on the north side and one on the south side. The north side, they actually clean their sanitation systems through laser treatment. They fund that. The Water Reclamation District does. They don't do that in the south side at all because they think, well, we're putting all of our money up there and it'll be too much money to put in the south side. As opposed to splitting it equally between the exactly. two. Exactly. Jesus Christ. I didn't even know that one. So you're telling me the south side, and not just City, Chicago City, proper South Side. We're even talking down a little bit in Cook County. Like Kankakee. Kankakee, Roseland, <laughs> down that way. Pullman, down that way. Are we talking uh, down at uh, Benedict uh, University yes. where the Bears do training? Yes. I wonder if the Bears know that. Don't know. That they're drinking contaminated water, or at least water that's not as clean as it could be. I mean, so, I mean, I mean, could you? You were talking about, you know, is this a racial thing or not? I'm just saying. This no, I mean, that's house. the thing, and that, and that's the other, the other big, you know, lie of the United States is that, you know, you 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 mention something like that, and somebody goes, "Well, the system isn't racist," and you go, "But the North Side, predominantly white, gets laser treated, <laughs> cleaning, and the South Side, predominantly African American, does not." What other conclusion is there? What exactly. what other conclusion is there? There isn't. And it doesn't matter. Those are the absolutes that I'm fighting for. <laughs> well, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show where we got really happy and had a lot of fun. Jesus, man. I don't know. I, I, what do you want to do next week? I want to kind of keep this conversation in a, in a way going. What do you want to – let's give it people. Where do you want to take this conversation going forward so I can get ready for it? I don't know, man, because um... – I'm just pretty upset with a lot of systems right now. I, I look I'm at, upset with the entertainment business. I'm upset with the political system. I'm upset with certain nonprofits. Um, how about we talk about how about how about you and I talk about what our own respective utopia looks like? I like that. So Monday we'll do a show on what the world would look like if if we could just do it. Yes. Interesting. I like it. AJ, do what you do. Bye, people. 
Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Nick Sarantos and AJ Signeri with Out Front. Uh, we will be doing a couple of shows next week as well. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation, even though it doesn't end on the happiest of nudes. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Chicago Podcast Network. You can find us on Twitter, Chicago Podcast One. And you can email us on Gmail at Chicago Podcast Network at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope that you guys have enjoyed it. And we will talk to you guys next week. Be safe over the weekend, and if you're listening to this 10 years from now, I hope that the robot overlords that are run by the Republican governors haven't whipped you too badly. We out! It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. You have been listening to the Chicago Podcast Network.